We are in the third week of a series that we titled Covenant and Kingdom, where we're taking a look at covenant relationship and kingdom practices or responsibility. This week, we're going to look at the life of Joseph, and the title of this message is A Higher Calling, A Higher Calling. So if you have your Bibles, I want you to join me in Genesis chapter 37. Genesis chapter 37. Last week, we took a look at the life of Abraham, appropriately deemed the father of our faith, a man that we saw entered into a covenant relationship with God, and God made him some precious promises, and one of which was that he would number his seed like the sands of the earth and like the, the stars of the heavens, and God is still, he's yet fulfilling his covenant promise to Abraham. And so today we're going to take a look at the life of his great-grandson, Joseph. And I got to tell you, this is an incredible story. It's a story that's filled with a rich sense of purpose and destiny. And so what we're going to do is we're going to break the life of Joseph down into three parts today. And then we're going to look at some practical application, how taking a look at his life can be applied practically today through the lessons that we learn from his life. Okay. So part one is found in Genesis chapter 37. And I'm going to be reading out of the ESV today. So yours might read a little different than mine. Okay, so Genesis chapter 37, let's pick it up in verse 2. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pastoring the, the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bila and Zilpha, Zilpa, his father's wives. And Joseph bought a bad report of them to their father. Now Israel, that's another name for Jacob, loved Joseph more than any of the other of his sons because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a robe of many colors. But when he, his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Now Joseph had a dream. And when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. And he said to them, hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. <laughs> his brothers said to him, are you indeed to reign over us? Or are you indeed to rule over us? And so they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Then he dreamed another dream and he told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun and moon and the eleven stars were bowing down to me. Then he told it to his father and to his brothers and his father rebuked him and said to him, what is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come and bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in mind. I don't know about you, but I smell trouble brewing in this story. Can't you smell it? So it's brewing. One day, 
Joseph's brothers are out tending his father's flock near Shechem. His father calls, calls Joseph up and he says, hey, man, I want you to go check out your brothers, make sure everything's cool, and bring me back a report of their activity. So Joseph takes off, goes down to Shechem, but he doesn't find his brothers there. He wanders around the field, and, and he gets lost, and a man walks up to him and, and says, and what, what are you looking for? And he says, I'm looking for my brothers, man. I'm, you know, there's, there's nine or ten of them, and, and they should have the flock around here somewhere in Shechem, but, but I, don't, I don't know where they're at. And so the man said, listen, I heard, and, and I heard a, a few men talking. I saw their, their herd. Sounds like what you're talking about. And they said that they were on their way down to Dotham. Why don't you go down there, see if you can find them there. So so Joseph takes off to, to Dotham. Bible says that, that as he approaches, his brothers see him coming. And they conspire with each other and they say, here comes the dreamer. Let's kill him, throw him in a pit, and then make up a story about what happened to him. Say that some bad animals, maybe ravenous wolves got a hold of him. Reuben comes, Reuben is the oldest of the sons, and, and, and he says, no, he says, listen, you, no, 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 we're not going to kill our brother, this is our father's favorite son, I don't want to hear dad's mouth when he finds out that Joseph is dead, so let's just toss him in the pit and leave him there and we'll decide what to do. Reuben leaves, the brothers toss Joseph in the pit, strip him of his coat, sit down and have lunch. Bible says a caravan of Midianites come by. And the brothers minus Reuben conspire. And they say, listen, why don't we pull Joseph out of the pit and sell him to the Midianites? Then we'll see what becomes of his dreams. So they beckon the Midianite caravan over there, pull Joseph out of the pit, agree to sell Joseph for 20 shekels of silver. And off he goes to Egypt. Reuben comes back wondering what happened to his brother. Finds out that he's, that he's been sold into slavery to the Egyptians. So now they get together and they make up a story about what happened to him. And they take the story back to Jacob saying that Joseph was killed by wild animals. And the Bible says that, Joseph, that Jacob mourned the death of his son. And meanwhile, the Midianite caravan makes its way down to Egypt. And they sell Joseph to a man named Potiphar, the officer, one of the high-ranking officers in Pharaoh's court. In fact, he's the captain, the captain of the Egyptian guard. So now Joseph's in Egypt. So now let's stop for a moment. Let's take a look at this picture. Think about what must have been going on in Joseph's mind. Think about it. This brother wakes up one morning, and he has it all, right? He's gifted. He's handsome. He's 17 years old. And though he's not the oldest of all the boys, remember I told you about the blessing being passed on to the oldest male? He's not the oldest, but he's the favored son. And again, he's gifted in administration, so gifted that his father gives him oversight over his older brothers. And then his father gives him this coat of many colors. And this coat of many colors really is an indication of his favored status in his father's eyes. 
He was the center of attention. He was given special privileges. His work that he did from day to day was free of any manual labor. His life was was filled with minimal effort, hardly any restraints, and very minimal restrictions. This was a young man that was filled with pride. Can you see it? But then he wakes up one morning, and he's the pride of his father. But he's also the envy of his brothers. So by that afternoon of that same day, he'd been sold into slavery and headed off to Egypt. And we don't know much about what takes place between, you know, uh, when he gets to Egypt and, and, uh, and, and what takes place in part of his house. But here's what we do know. There's a passage of scripture in Psalms 105 that tells us that his feet were hurt with fetters. His neck was put in a collar of iron. Until what he had said came to pass, the word of God tested him. Psalms 105.18. And let me tell you something, man. Joseph was tested. He was being tested. So now part two of the story begins in chapter 39. We find Joseph faithfully serving in the house of Potiphar. And here's what we know about Joseph's time there. Approximately nine years had elapsed from the time he was sold into slavery. And the Bible tells us that the Lord was with Joseph and he was successful at every task that he was given. So successful that Potiphar made him overseer of all of his house and placed him in charge over everything that he had. We see the covenant promise that God made with Abraham being realized in Joseph. Remember back in Genesis chapter 12, verse 3, where where God told Abraham, through you all of the families of the earth will be blessed. Potiphar's house, the Egyptian's house, was being blessed because Joseph was there. Bible tells us that Potiphar, this great man, only concerned himself about the food that he ate on a daily basis, the rest of the authority of the entire running and working of his household was given over to Joseph. Man, listen, everything was flowing in Joseph's life. Joseph, Joseph had risen out of the pit, and now he's sitting in part of his house. He had it going on. Everything was flowing, and then enters Mrs. Potiphar. Let's pick it up in Genesis chapter 39, verse 6, the second half of verse 6. Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. And after a time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, Lie with me. But he refused. And he said to his master's wife, Behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house. And he's put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except you, because you're his wife. So now, how can I do this great wickedness? Watch this now, and, okay? So two things happen in this sentence. Joseph is saying, listen, it's a wicked thing for me to sleep with another man's woman. He said, but also, more importantly, it's a sin before my God. So how can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? And she spoke to him day after day. And listen to this. Now watch this. Watch this progression. He would not listen to her. 
he would not lie beside her or be with her. In other words, Joseph made, his, made up his mind, this is a dangerous situation for me, man. I'm not even going to find myself alone with this woman. Right? So the story goes on. It continues. Bible says one day Joseph goes to the house to do his normal business. Right? And there's nobody there but Mrs. Potiphar. In my mind's eye, I can just see Mrs. Potiphar has sent all the help away. So now it's just her and Joseph. So Joseph walks into the house. There's nobody there. I think Mrs. Potiphar snuck up behind him. I think she snuck up behind him and grabbed him. You're going to lay with me today. I'm tired of begging. Bible says Joseph was like, oh, no, get your hands off me. <laughs> and takes off running. He flees, the Bible says. Leaves his coat in Mrs. Potiphar's hand. So now she's got to figure out what to do with this coat. So she makes up a story. This Hebrew that you brought, this Hebrew, and that first, the first indication of the word Hebrew when it was mentioned back in, when it was when it's talking about Abraham is, is nomad. It means nomad. It means a wanderer. This wanderer that you brought into our well-systematized family now has wreaked havoc. He came in to lay with me, but I screamed out. The only thing is left is his coat. Bible says that Potiphar gets angry and he sends Joseph to a section of the prison that's reserved for the servants of royalty. Right? Mm. A little side journey. I'm not so sure that Potiphar didn't know what was going on. I'm not so sure that Potiphar didn't know that it was his wife that was trying to make this work and happen. Just something to think about. So we pick up the story in chapter 39, verse 21. But the Lord was with Joseph. He's in prison now and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison. Seems like a pattern here, doesn't it? Whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. And the keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. With whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. Now, where are, where are we in this story? Joseph, Joseph now is about 28 years old. He's been in prison for about nine years or 11 years now. And, and here's what's happened. During this time, he's learned some humility. No doubt through the pain and, and the suffering and the, the isolation and the injustice that he had experienced in prison. And at some point in this period, what we find is that, is that the, the cupbearer and the baker to the king, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker to the king now, are also tossed into prison with Joseph. And Joseph is given charge to attend to them. And the Bible says that as it happened, these two men had disturbing dreams. Dreams which Joseph accurately interpreted. And for, so for the sake of time, though, I'm not going to go into all the dreams. 
But suffice it to say that the dreams represented restoration for the baker. No, restoration for the cupbearer, and it was a death sentence for the baker. Dreams played out exactly the way that Joseph had described them. Then Joseph instructed the cupbearer, he said, listen, man, when you're free and you're restored and you're doing your thing again, remember me in this prison. Remember that I told you the the truth about your dream. But the Bible says that the cupbearer forgot. Two years goes by. And one night, Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, lays down and he has two successive disturbing dreams back to back. The next morning, he calls all his wise men in the kingdom, asks if they can uh, interpret the dream. They have no interpretation for the dream. And then the cupbearer remembers Joseph. And he says to the king, you know, there's a cat down in the prison that when I was down there with him, he interpreted my dream. You might want to check this guy out. I think he can interpret your dream. So the Bible says Pharaoh pulled Joseph out of the pit, had him cleaned up and shaven, presented to him, and Joseph accurately interprets Pharaoh's dreams. He tells Pharaoh there's going to be seven years of plenty and then seven years of extreme famine. And then he goes on to tell Pharaoh exactly what needs to be done in those seven years to the degree that Pharaoh was so pleased with the answer and it resonated so much in his spirit that the Bible records the results. Here's what happened next. Genesis chapter 41 verse 38. How many of you brought your Bibles with you today? That sure isn't a lot of people. Are y'all used to to the words being up on the screen? I don't want you to get used to the words being on the screen now. Everybody say, bring your Bibles with you. I'm going to be asking you every week until I see every hand go up. Amen. Thank you, Jesus. Genesis chapter 41, verse 38. And Pharaoh said to his servants, can we find a man like this in whom this is the spirit of God? And then Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has shown you all of this, there is none so discerning and as wise as you. You shall be over my house and all my people shall, shall order themselves as you command. Only as it regards the throne will I be greater than you. Listen to that. This is what Pharaoh's saying. He says, listen. Only when I sit in the throne, in the throne to do kingdom business, will I be greater than you. That's the only time. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, see, I've set you over all the land of Egypt. And then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his hand and put it on Joseph's hand and closed him in garments of fine linen and put a gold chain about his neck and made him ride in the second chariot. And they called out before him, Bow the knee, and thus he set him over all the land of Egypt. Joseph now is the, is the governor. He is the ruler of the most powerful nation on the planet. Nothing moves in that kingdom without his say-so. Nothing is bought or sold without his permission. Look at God. Part three begins now with a severe famine that overtakes the land. And again, yet because of Joseph, here's that pattern. God had so abundantly blessed Egypt with storehouses full of grain and reserves 
that people were coming from far and wide to buy enough food just to survive, to buy it from Egypt. Jacob, Joseph's father, hears about the food that's down in Egypt. And so he sends his sons, Jacob's or Joseph's brothers, to Egypt to buy enough food for their family to survive. This was dire straits here. So the 10 brothers venture down to Egypt to buy food. But unbeknownst to them, they're about to face Joseph. They have no idea. So when they come into his presence, they don't even recognize them. They don't even recognize Joseph. But Joseph recognizes them. And when they bow before Joseph, he is struck in that moment with the realization that everything that he had dreamed years ago is now coming to pass. Between chapters 42 and 45, there's a whole lot of stuff that takes place. It's an incredible storyline. I don't have the time to really go into it. I suggest that you go back and that you read it. It will really fill in some of the blanks and give you a complete picture. But chapter 45 now begins with Joseph no longer emotionally able to conceal his emotions from his brothers. They're there now with him. They still don't know who he is. So he, he starts to weep and he kicks all the servants out of the room and he begins to weep. He makes himself known to his brothers. And I got to tell you, the next statement that Joseph makes to me is one of the most profound statements in all of Scripture because I believe Joseph gets it. I believe Joseph understands it's about the perpetuation of the kingdom of God. It's about the very nature of God being good. Our God, our Father, is a good God. Chapter 45, verse 4. So Joseph says to his brothers, Come near me, please. And they came near, and he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now... Do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep you alive, for you are many survivors. And so it was not you who sent me here, but God. And he made me a father to Pharaoh and lord over all his house and ruler over the land of Egypt. Joseph gets it. Joseph understands it's about the covenant relationship that God made with his great-grandfather Abraham, and now it's about him being given, put in his hand, kingdom responsibilities to preserve a remnant, posterity, his family. So what's the practical application for this story? I believe that there are three lessons that we can learn from the life of Joseph. And here's the first one. The first one is this. It's not about us. 
It's not about us. See, the work of God in our life is really continual. And through tests and trials, he molds us and he shapes us and he hones us and he refines us. As we go through trials, we can rest assured that God is at work in us and through us and even for us. The Bible tells us that all things work together for good. All things work together for good. All things. Everybody say all. All things work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose. That's what the scripture says. So God is at work in us, through us, and for us. But watch this now. Don't miss this. It is never about us. What we go through is never about us. It's always about the glory of God being revealed in and through us. It's about God wants to put our lives on display so his glory and his goodness can shine through us. That's what it's about. The second lesson we can learn from Joseph is that it's always bigger than right now. And God has a, an incredible plan for our life. And, and the tests that he allows to come to us really are designed to shape the unshaped areas of our life. So when we persevere through trials and temptations that this life has to offer, we receive something of lasting value, something that reaches beyond the temporary pain that we're experiencing, beyond the temptation that we're experiencing, beyond the right now. Perseverance presses us into kingdom purpose, into maturity as followers of Jesus Christ, into God's eternal purpose for our lives. Yielding to the temptation of now could very well cause me to forfeit what God has had, has planned for me in my future. And here's a key point. Every time you and I yield to temptation, something in our future dies. Every time you and I yield to the temptation of right now, something in our future is forfeited and dies. Just, just imagine with me, if you will, how differently Joseph's life would have looked had he yielded to the temptation of Mrs. Potiphar. Imagine what would the outcome be had he decided not to persevere and persistent to do the right thing, I think his future would have looked totally different. I believe it's possible that Joseph would have, would have forfeited all of his dreams. God has great plans for you. Romans 8 and 18 and 2 Corinthians 4 and 17 says that the tests that we're facing right now, the trials aren't even worthy to be compared with the glory that's going to be revealed in us. As God is making us and shaping us and molding us, we get to experience his glory in and through us, be revealed in us if we'll only persevere. So what dreams do you have right now that you're about to forfeit? What temptations are you facing right now that you're about to yield to? Don't do it. 
It's never about right now. It's always about the work of God. Don't yield. Don't compromise. Allow God to complete the work that he started in your life. The third thing is that we can learn, the third lesson we can learn from Joseph is that this too will pass. You know, it had been 13 grueling years of endurance for, for Joseph from chains to comptroller. And all the pain and suffering that he had to endure now started to make sense as he had laid his hands, his head on the, on the shoulders of his brothers and wept, realizing why God had allowed him to go through what he went through. You know, this, this past week, last Wednesday, I had one of the most incredible experiences of my life. I just left an elder meeting. It started early in the morning, and, and it ended up about a half hour before it normally would. And so I had a half hour between the end of the meeting to my next appointment. And I'm out at the Raspberry campus, so, so I just felt compelled to, to take a ride out down Raspberry, down to Coolidge Air National Guard Base. I was in the military for 20 years, one day, three hours, and 15 minutes. So I drove out to that guard base. I fully expected, because now it's vacant. It's been vacant now for about three years. You know, Coolis has, or the guard has moved out to Elmendorf. And so I fully expected, you know, being an old military installation for, for there to have, you know, gates and chains. But there were no gates and there were no chains. It was open. I said, hmm. So I drove down into the base. As I got to, to a certain part of the base, I looked in the building that I used to work in. <sighs> I saw it. Pulled down to the parking lot of that building. Weeds growing up. It's vacant now. Nobody's in there. Weeds growing up on the building. Weeds growing all around the, the side of the building. I, I make the decision to, to walk and to, to, to at least, you know, get off my motorcycle. I was on my bike and to get off my motorcycle and, you know, to go check the door. And I got to tell you guys, that building for me represents so much heartache and pain and anguish and fear and insecurity and insignificance. And as I walked up to that building, my heart started to pound. I walked up to the door, I left my motorcycle running, fully expecting for the building not to be open, but guess what? It was open. So I go back down to the motorcycle and I cut it off and I grab the key and I walk up to the door and my heart is pounding because I'm about to walk into the place that represented so much pain for me for years. I walk into the door and I, and I, I look to the left where, where there used to be cubicles and desks and, and all that space now is cleared. And you can see where the traffic patterns had worn into the carpet. And I'm able to look over there now and see the exact spot that my desk set as I was being ridiculed for my faith day after day, year after year, being belittled, unappreciated, day after day, year after year, felt like I was being held in captivity, chained to a desk under the authority of a woman that I believe was the reincarnation of Satan. Unbelievable. I walked over to that spot where my desk was, the carpet almost looking like it's fresh and brand new where the desk sat. That's how long it had sat there. 
And I stood on that very spot where my desk was and I wept. And when I opened my eyes, the Holy Spirit reminded me, yeah, you went through, but you're still standing. And my life, man, I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to go back through what I went through, but I wouldn't trade what that time meant for my growth and my experience and the honing of who I am for anything. That that doesn't kill you only serves to make you stronger. And every trial in your life that God allows is designed to mold you and to shape you and to make you more into the image of God every single day, every single trial to the glory of God our Father. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 10 tells us that we are the workmanship of God created in Christ Jesus for good works. Watch this now, which God has prepared for us before he laid the foundations of the world. Kingdom purpose. We are masterpieces. That's what workmanship means. We are masterpieces in the hand of the master craftsman. In our lives, our lives that are being shaped by the trials that he allows us to go through are an ongoing work in the master's hand. He molds us. He shapes us through our trials for kingdom purposes. Kingdom purposes that he's created for us to fulfill for us to fulfill. Nobody else can fulfill what he's created us to fulfill, for us to fulfill. Our kingdom purpose and our assignment is just as unique to us as the thumbprint on our hand. He created us for kingdom purpose before he laid the foundation of the world. Jose, you can bring your team up. God wants to use us to affect his kingdom. He, he's called us to a higher calling. He's always speaking to us. He's always wanting to get our attention, calling us into kingdom purpose. What has he designed you to do? What is he uniquely designed to do and person to place the passion in your heart that watch this now, the enemy through the trials and through the struggles that you've had to endure has tried to squinch, quench, take away from you, rip out of you. God wants to restore that passion. God wants to define that purpose for you. So you can walk, so that you and I can walk in the purpose that he's called us to. So God is always speaking. The questions that we need to ask ourselves, first, are we listening to what he has to say? And then what will we do about it? Will we bow our hearts to the king of kings? 
and let him use us for what he's designed us for. I pray that that's the case for you. For you. Because the body of Christ can never be complete until each part does its work. Let's God, let God shape us and then watch God use us. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the great example that we get from the life of Joseph. I pray, Lord, that, that just taking an overview of his life stimulates each of us to step into the purpose that you've created us for. Show us what it looks like individually, Lord, and then collectively to be your hands and your feet and, and to accomplish the work that you've sent us to do as ambassadors for you in your kingdom. And I pray that as you reveal what that looks like for us, that we will step into what we, you have called us to do to expand your kingdom in this earth and to touch the lives of those who have yet to embrace the saving grace in the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's your purpose for us. So our good and great and, and, and gracious God, we thank you for the privilege of being kingdom builders. We exalt you in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.